Thanks, Bruce. It was much appreciated. I hope you can hear that uh, tone that's coming through in that passage because Bruce put it over really well. And it's that tone that's important for us as we look at this part of the Scriptures together. As we come to the second last in our series on 2 Corinthians, uh, two more weeks to go, Power in Weakness. And so uh, keep your Bible open. We've got a lot to look at in those sections this morning and really love you to put your eyes down to it at different times. Uh, Let's start with this. I want you to turn to the people next to you uh, and I want you to have a a, a 30-second conversation uh, and look on the screen what is in common with these four people. Don't yell it out. We'll come back to it in a minute. What is in common with these four people? Uh, You're going to have a discussion about it and come back in about 30 seconds time. Go. Which left-hand corner? I'll turn. I'll go over that way. All right. As uh, let's see if you can come up with anything. Are there any um, particular thoughts? What joins these people together? None of them can grow a beard. None of them can grow a beard. Well, I don't know if that. I don't know about that. As a bearded man myself, he's got a bit of a beard. Painted on. It's painted on. So is mine. Any others? They're well known. They're well known. That's a good start. Excellent. So they say they're Christian. They claim to be Christians. Claim to be Christians. Very good. Very true. Excellent. Now you might not know exactly who each of these people are. Let me bring you up to speed if you're not sure. Uh, top, top, uh, top left-hand corner as you look at it is, of course, uh, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Then down below him is the uh, uh, rugby league player Jared Hayne. Uh, and then up on the top right-hand corner, you've got Guy Sebastian. And then down the bottom, uh, Kanye, or whatever he wants to call himself today. Uh, these, are, these are four uh, prominent Christian people, or at least they were. Um, we have a bit of a love affair with powerful, famous, influential Christians, don't we? We love the idea that guys like this in powerful and influential positions, might represent us to the world or influence the world for Jesus. Without any reflection on any one of those people and their faith, and I'm not sure what their faith is like, I've never met them personally, but I do know this, when we find powerful, famous, influential Christians, often what comes afterwards is a failure of morality or non-biblical opinions that they put out into the world, or worse still, like at least one of the people on the screen before, they leave the faith publicly and entirely. We hope God will use these famous people. We hope God will use these powerful people. We hope God will use these influential people. But on almost every single occasion, none of these powerful, famous, influential people start big movements for the cause of Christ. It simply doesn't happen. Why? 
Because as we saw last week, this is just not how God operates. Now that doesn't mean famous Christians can't be famous faithful Christians. They can and we should pray for them, especially in positions of power and influence. But God works his plans out, as we saw last week, as he changes the hearts of people by his word through weak messengers of the gospel. We saw this last week in chapter 10. Paul said, God changes hearts by his word, so we should therefore be, uh, be aware, beware of the attractions of image, comparisons, boasting in other people's ministry, these dangers that come across our path, making it about us rather than about God. And as Paul finishes in chapter 10, verse 17, he says this, Therefore, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, today, in chapters 11 and 12, Paul continues to try and convince the Corinthians and us of this very point. That God's power is seen through weakness. But as you heard, as Bruce read, Paul might be considered perhaps a little salty in this passage. A little sarcastic. And we're going to look at this together as Paul boasts in order that he might teach the Corinthians and us that God's power is perfect in weakness. Now this is one of those passages as we come to in the Bible. You might be a little confused about its tone or what it's saying or how it works. Great opportunity for you to ask a question later. Slido.com, hashtag HBSP. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into this chapter and a half together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that this uh, passage of an unusual tone might uh, ring true in our hearts and minds by your spirit today. So we might see what it means to live for you as weak uh, servants of you through whom your power can be seen. We ask that you would uh, speak clearly through me today and help us all to have hearts and minds that are eager to hear your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is a phrase uh, where I'm just playing your game or I'm playing their game, where you sort of go to another person and you jump through their hoops in order to do what you need to do or to make a point. Perhaps it's filling out the 15 pages of paperwork that you need to do to get to service New South Wales, something, 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 when you could just talk to a person. We all know how that works. You play their game. You jump through their hoops to get what you need to achieve. Well, in this passage, Paul plays the game of the Corinthians. He plays their game. And in chapters 11 and 12, he steps up reluctantly to play the Corinthians game of boasting. Having just said in chapter 10, verse 17, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, he now turns to the Corinthians to play their game, to convince them that God's power is perfect in weakness by boasting. But he recognises it for what it is, as foolishness. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. You can hear his tongue firmly implanted in his cheek when he says this, can't you? You can hear his tone. Oh, bear with me. Very sarcastic. He's going to play their game by boasting before the Corinthians. After all, the Corinthians and their leaders loved boasting. 
You might remember back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You remember some of the people in Corinth in the church said, I follow Paul. And, and some others said, I follow Apollos. And some others say, I followed Cephas or Peter. Some say, well, I'm better than everyone. I follow Jesus. I'm just a Christian. But they were boasting in their leaders. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14, Paul goes on about the spiritual gifts that are present in Corinth. And again, they were boasting about which spiritual gift was more important. Tongues is better, prophecy is better, or healing is better, and so on. And Paul says, no, the whole thing is messed up. It's not how good your skills are. It's about how much you love people and want to build them up in Christ. And now these impressive leaders have entered into Corinth. And comparisons are abounding. Paul, he's hopeless. He can't speak properly. But these impressive leaders are wonderful and now we boast in these impressive leaders. They're our guys. They get us. They perform well. The Corinthian church and their newfound leaders were keen on boasting. And Paul now is just about to jump in and play their game, although as 11.1 shows us, he's reluctant to do so. And so it takes him quite some time in this chapter to actually warm into getting to the boasting point which he'll do a little later on. Before we get there, though, he's going to sort of explain why he's going to boast before them. He feels so dirty and horrible about doing so that he gives them three reasons why he will boast in the first half of chapter 11. First of all, in verses 2 to 6, they've been deceived. They've been deceived. See, the Apostle Paul is speaking like this because he loves them. He loves the Corinthians. He brought the gospel to the Corinthians. And like a spiritual father, he says in verse 2, I betrothed you to Christ. And yet you're all too ready to listen to other people. To take on another Christ. He uses in verse 3, the example of being deceived like Adam and Eve were in the garden. And they are being deceived, in verse 4, to take on another Christ, another spirit. Now, this is not to say there is, of course, another Jesus or another spirit, but they are taking a deception of who Jesus is, a deception of who the Holy Spirit is. And as verse 4 says, they accept it readily enough. They swallow it down. Of course, this is an ever-present danger for us. In 2022 as well. Paul said in the last days, people will gather together, teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We do know, don't we, that in our own day, everything, everything is judged by emotion and aesthetic. I know this to be true. You and I both know, if you like your coffee, you know where to get a good coffee, don't you? Not because of what the coffee shop actually sells but because of what it looks like if the aesthetic of the coffee shop is a hole in the wall in the city and they charge you $17 for their coffee chances are it's going to be fantastic or at least that's what we think we're in a world of aesthetics and emotions and we're ready made to be drawn away from the truth of Christ in an era like our own because for, what, uh, for us, what's important is the style meter or the skill meter or the feelings meter or the vibe meter. But for Paul, he says it's about the truth, the true Jesus. 
It's always a danger for us that we might swallow down a a false and fake Jesus. May it never be for us. I always say to uh, to the young people in youth group, and I hope that you with parents will say the same thing to your kids as well, that if you move out of town for university, I want you to be able to go to a church that's dusty, smells weird, and has a guy up the front that is a retired clergyman that's 100 years old because he's preaching the truth, as opposed to the church in town that's lost the gospel with the cool vibe, the cool music, and the lights at the front. It's easy to be deceived. These people are being deceived, the Corinthians, and they're accepting a different gospel. And it's a very big danger for them, and it's going to lead Paul to boast in a moment, something he does not want to do. Secondly, uh, verses 7 to 11 tell us that Paul himself had been undermined. In the ancient world, and it's a little bit the same today, but in the ancient world, the better the speaker, the better the performer, the more money that person got. About 15 years ago, we went to buy a people mover. Our plan was always to have four children. We ended up having three under God's, under God's plan. And so we thought with four children on the offing, we were going to get a, a bit, one of those big people movers. So we went shopping for the, uh, the Kias and the Toyota Taragos and bits and pieces, did all the comparison that you would normally do. I remember going into the place, uh, the Toyota dealership, and saying to the Toyota guy, look, we've seen the Kia one. It's got this and this and this and this, and it's $20,000 cheaper than your, your machine. Why should we buy yours? We are pretty direct about it. We said, why should we buy yours? And I remember he said to us, he said, well, that's a pretty good deal. Uh, uh, you're just paying for the name with us, he said. You're paying for the name, Toyota. Uh, it's not a very good reason. We bought the Kia in the end, save us all the money. Maybe he was just a bad salesman. But we know that that's true, actually, don't we? When we go shopping for maybe for white goods or a television or something like that, we think, oh, the brand name, oh, it's probably better. I know it costs $5,000 more, but it's probably better. So we'll get that one. It was the same in the ancient world. These guys were demanding huge pay packets for what they were bringing to Corinth. As a result, their reputation was high. Oh, these guys must be good. They're worth a lot of money. These guys must be good communicators because their bill at the end of the night is astronomical. On the other hand, Paul, the apostle who brought the gospel to the town, he didn't even put in a bill. He was self-employed and asked for zero dollars. Therefore, he must be completely useless. But Paul says over in chapter 12, you might want to just flick over with me to chapter 12, verse 12. He says, don't forget, Corinthians, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favoured than the rest of the other churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Paul did not want to play their game. Paul didn't want to be judged on the size of the pay packet that he received. A few weeks ago, you might remember, we spoke about generosity that's here in chapters 8 and 9 of the book of 1 Corinthians. And we heard that it's right and proper to pay missionaries and ministers uh, uh, for the task of bringing the gospel to the people of God. And yet I know as a fact, and I heard this a couple of weeks ago from a particular person, they said, you're doing it because you get paid to do it. And I know from that moment, whatever I do will not be heard as genuine from that person. Because it's just a job or a payment 
Well, that's what it would seem to be for them. And so the impact of God's word in their hearts is diluted. And Paul didn't want that impact to be diluted. And now there's a problem. Because though he loves the Corinthian people, they think that what he did is worth nothing because he wouldn't take any money for it. And he says, look, I don't care for me. But the problem is, I love you and you're in danger of losing the gospel if you discredit what I'm saying to you. Thirdly, for the first time in the letter, Paul now turns to the apostles in the town of Corinth and calls them what they really are. He finally names them. Verse 13, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. He called them back uh, earlier in the passage as super apostles, tongue firmly implanted in cheek. And he says in verse 14, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also describe themselves as servants of of righteousness. Fake, false apostles, deceitful workmen, working with Satan, disguised like others. Now, we need to be careful, don't we? (coughs) Oftentimes, Satan takes the form, if you want to put it that way, of leaders in the church of God. Now, this does not mean, as many have done today, that we should run away from the idea of leadership at all or fear our leaders or be suspicious of them. But instead, we should insist on their faithfulness. Insist not on their fruitfulness, but their faithfulness. Insist on the truth that they bring so that they might not be deceitful workmen disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ and taking the church off the rails. See, Paul has set the foundation here. Here are some reasons why I'm about to boast. He set the foundation, but he's still uncomfortable about it, isn't he? Look at verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. Caveat after caveat he's putting forward to the Corinthians. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, not saying with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly, listen to this, dripping with irony. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. He says, I'm not speaking like the Lord would speak. It's not that this is not God's word here in this passage, but this is not God's way of going about doing things. Your boasting game that you're playing, Corinthians, is not godly. That's not how God would operate. And so finally, his boasting begins in verse 22. Sorry, second half of verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? Me too. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. The boasting has begun. Here's a list of true things that uh, that are true of Paul. He is a Hebrew. He is of the Israelites. He is an offspring of Abraham, right to the core of uh, the, the things of the Old Testament. And then he says, I am a servant of Christ. Now, I don't know what you expect to come after that boasting. 
He started to list off his credentials before them. And perhaps you expect to read his LinkedIn profile at this point. I've planted more churches than anyone. I've converted more people than anyone in history. I've been to more cities than anyone. I've been and crossed more cultures than anyone else. I've written more books, by the way. I'm writing the Bible, did you know? More skills than anyone, more abilities than anyone. But he doesn't do that, does he? No LinkedIn profile here. He changes the tack entirely. He actually takes this boasting and now turns it on its head. Parodies it, if you like. Look at the list. Let me take you through it again. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. You can hear him speaking under his breath. I'm talking like a madman. Here we go. Far greater labours, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in sea, danger from false brothers. Danger's there. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And, apart from the other things, <laughs> there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. In brackets, you guys, Corinthians. And he says in verse 29, Who is weak and I am not weak? In other words, if you're weak, Corinthians, I feel weak. Verse 29 again, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. You are being made to fall and I'm filthy about it. That's my anxiety for the churches. See, here is a list of true things that have happened to Paul. Not things in his LinkedIn profile and not just self-deprecation either. We might do that. We might take our good things and put them to the side and self-deprecate and say things that actually aren't true. But Paul here is doing real boasting about real things, real and true things, but they are different things entirely to the boasts of the Corinthians and their new leaders. He says, I'm boasting of, our, of my sufferings. I'm boasting of my anxiety for the churches, which is basically you guys, Corinthians... The opponents boast in their skill and how good they are and Paul boasts in his suffering and how much he's had. What's more, it goes on, verse 32. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was led down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Seems like a strange detail, this one. What's going on? For us, it sounds like a great rescue story. But for Paul, this is a humiliation story. Here's the powerful Apostle Paul. He could have stood up to the authorities in the city, but rather than that, he cowardly backed out and went away down in, uh, in a, uh, a basket made for fish, most likely, in a hole in the wall. He's trying to say here, this is humiliation. This is totally opposite of the leaders in Corinth, who were all about skill, style, rhetoric, ability, to make people feel stuff, their aesthetic, whatever else it might have been. But Paul says in verse 30, the reason I boast like this is, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That's the point. 
I will boast of things that show my weakness. You see, as Christian brothers and sisters, when it comes to the things of Christ like this, we should not be boasting in skills and abilities and successes and victories because God gives these things. Boasting about anything like this is utter stupidity because we believe when we boast like that that our abilities come from ourselves, but they don't. They, they all come from God. Everything comes from God. And when we move out of the way and highlight our weaknesses, then the strengths of God can be seen even more clearly. When we are weak, he is strong. And so Paul, in the first part of his boasting, boasts about his suffering and humiliation to show up his weakness. But the boasting continues. In chapter 12, As we jump into chapter 12 and look at these verses that are very unusual by themselves, I want to ask if anyone has seen these books. Don't don't raise your hand, but have you seen these books? Look at on the screen. There's three particular books here and the three of just many that I could have chosen uh, that are in some Christian bookshops. Not good. Don't buy these. Don't buy these. These are not good. Nine Days in Heaven. This was written a couple of hundred years ago now, uh, but uh, not a good book. Heaven is for real. Not a good book. Uh, the Boy Who Came Back from Heaven by Kevin Malarkey, which is no, um, no pun. Uh, uh, now, at least the last one has been uh, reneged. It's been brought off the market because uh, Kevin Malarkey has gone and said that they really, it really was Malarkey. They made it all up. Uh, that's the story. Uh, but these books and books like it are hugely popular. There's another one called 23 Days in Hell or something like that about people's visions and spiritual experiences that they've had. And it outlines what happens for them when they have these experiences in heaven or hell or whatever. And when these books first came out and started to hit the market a couple of decades ago, lots of Christians got very excited about these books. I will share all of these around because now people might get the Christian thing. They've told me of their spiritual experience. They've written it down. So many people will be convinced of this now. Well, Paul had an experience like this. And so, presumably, did the leaders in Corinth. The God told me people of their day were in the city of Corinth and they had, apparently, had visions and spiritual experiences. And Paul, well, he was second rate. He didn't have visions and spiritual experiences. Well, not that they knew of. And so, in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul goes on boasting but notice what he says in the second half of verse one i'm going to continue boasting though there is nothing to be gained by it i'm going to keep boasting even though it's useless i'll go on to visions and revelations of the lord you guys in corinth talk about your visions and revelations of the lord he says in verse two i know a man a christian man a man in christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. So here's Paul. He knows this man. 14 years ago, was caught up into the third heaven or paradise. Now, all of a sudden, we're really confused, aren't we? What is this he's talking about? Well, most likely, he's drawing down on some Jewish terminology of the day. The third heaven is most likely just referring to the the highest heaven. 
But we don't know much more about it than that. I don't know if you're interested in wanting to know more about what was experienced here. Many a conversation has been had about what exactly was this vision or this revelation, but the detail in this passage is very elusive. How did it all happen? Well, the the man was apparently caught up to the third heaven, to paradise, but apart from that, I don't know, only God knows. That's what the passage says. And in verse 4, what did this person, what did this man hear? Well, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. What did you hear there? Can't tell you. Can't utter it. Either because the man didn't understand it or the man didn't, uh, couldn't relate to what was being said there or he simply wasn't allowed to share it. Whatever it is, there's absolutely no detail here in this passage. And Paul says in verse 5, I'll boast about that man. <laughs> on, my, on my own behalf I won't boast, but I'll boast about that man. But then look at verse 6. Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. Paul's been talking about himself. This is him that he's talking about. But he can't bring of himself to speak in this way about his experiences. Why? Second half of verse 6. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul can't bring himself to speak of these spiritual experiences because then people will think more of him than they should. Why is it that in our own Christian world, whenever somebody has a so-called spiritual experience or the famous God told me moment, it needs to be told to everyone in the vicinity within a millisecond? People always tell you these stories. And as a result, we end up thinking more of them. See, if God told me a particular message for you today, then you'll be by definition attracted to me so that maybe you might hear more from God. Paul says that's not how it works. Consider this for a moment. Paul says, I had an experience where I had a vision and revelation from the Lord and it was 14 years ago. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that for a start, this didn't happen all the time, even for the Apostle Paul. One time, 14 years ago. And since then, he's visited the city of Corinth and written them three separate letters and not mentioned this experience even once. Hasn't mentioned it even once. Not in his letters, not in his visit, not at all. I haven't mentioned it until this point. But you've pushed me in my boasting to tell you about it right now. And we would love to know more of the details about what happened for Paul in his vision and his experience. But he says in verse 7, the reason I'm telling you this right now is so that I might show you my weakness. Look at verse 7. So to keep me from being too elated or conceited by the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being too elated, too conceited. To stop Paul getting too far ahead of himself, God gave him the famous thorn in his flesh. Now, what was the thorn in the flesh? Well, it's elusive too. Who knows? It could be anything. So much ink over so many thousands of years has been spilled trying to work out what the thorn in the flesh was, and we still don't know. 
But then that's not the point either. You see, the point here is that God gave it to him as a thorn in his flesh, something very painful in some way. A gift from God and yet a messenger from Satan. How can that be? Well, God allowed the brokenness of creation to impact in some way the Apostle Paul, the creation over which Satan is in charge at the moment as the prince of the power of the air. He's allowed a brokenness of the creation to overtake Paul so that he wouldn't get too far ahead of himself, so that he wouldn't think of himself too highly, so that he would stay humble after an amazing experience. What was the thorn? We don't know, but it was probably pretty bad. When you consider all the things that he said in chapter 11 that he's been through, Yet he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why did Paul get the thorn in the flesh? Well, because it's never been about him. It's not about his skill, ability, effort, resume, experiences or visions. It's about God and his power to change people by his word. That is God's power in our weakness, even in the apostle and even in ourselves. And so as we finish up, just a couple of quick reflections for us as we think about heading into this, uh, this week. First of all, remind yourself that the cross is the ultimate example of God's power in weakness. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the the power of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, it's the power of God. The cross looks like a weak point in human history, but it's actually the most powerful point. Secondly, don't go into life trying to control your own outcomes. Many of us desire to control things in our life, myself included, and over the last few years, we haven't been able to control things. That's why it's been so difficult for us. But the downside to trying to control everything is that when we do control things, we're really destined to boast about how awesome our control mechanisms were. Don't be surprised if you're a control freak and you end up boasting. That's what it's like for me. But we need to remember what our Archbishop Kanishka always talks about in his own, uh, in his own um, conversion story. He talks about losing control of his life to Jesus Christ. And when you do that, in that weakness, he is strong to take you and to make you part of his family. Thirdly, see this theme right through the Bible. Don't forget, in the Old Testament in particular, God uses the barren and the bereaved and the broken and the bad and the busted, the hopeless and the helpless and the humiliated, and he uses them to bring about his purposes. As for the proud and the, the ones who achieve and the powerful and the smart and the successful, they're usually the enemies of God. The big nations like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Be careful what you wish for. And as you read the Bible, remember this is not new. And fourthly, remember this, God does not need us. It's not as if God needs your style or my style or your impressiveness or celebrity influencer or your boasting skills, experience, visions and 
abilities. He needs faithful plotters and weak servants and regular speakers like you and me. Because God changes hearts by his powerful word. And so when it comes to these things of God, remove boasting from your life because the cross humbles us so that we might boast only in the Lord. As Paul said in chapter 10, verse 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, I think we might have time maybe just for one question or so today. So let's uh, take a moment just to stop and reflect, ask a question, and I'll come back in just a moment. mentioned one question that's perfect there's just one question there and it's uh, relating to chapter 12 verse 9 thanks for asking it how can we be more content in weakness chapter 12 verse 9 Um, uh, it's very that's very difficult I think Uh, the reason it's hard to be content in weakness is because it's just not even the way that we've been brought up Um, even though as Australians I think we're self-deprecating people Um, that's not weakness. What we do is we take things that are actually true and we just push them down. That's what self-deprecation is. Uh, Paul's boasting about real, true things here, but he's boasting about his suffering and about his weakness. So I think it's hard for us because uh, this is... um, Weakness doesn't come naturally to anybody, but we turn it on its head as Australians anyway and turn it into this self-deprecating thing, or at least I do. I know that's true. Um, So how can we be more content in weakness? I think the way to do it is to reflect more and more on the cross of Christ and where we stand in relation to that. I think that's got to be the key um, because as we reflect on on the cross, the cross will actually humble us and say we've got nothing to bring here uh, and, and that's when our weakness will, will come out. Um, uh, most, uh, I, was, I was reading some, um, some research yesterday that uh, people are less content with, with their lives than... Uh, than they want to be, they want to be more content, uh, but I think the contentment that comes when we're weak uh, is, is actually a strength. As Paul says in verse, uh, verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, the strength is not from ourselves. We understand that the weakness that comes in our own lives is not to focus on the weakness itself, but to say that God will work through me, love me, use me for his purposes. That's the strength. Uh, and so when we focus on that strength, I think we can't help but be brought low and be brought weak by Uh, the power of that gospel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word and we ask please that uh, you might help us to be a people who uh, walk in in weakness, 
reminded that uh, in our own weakness you are strong. We thank you so much for the cross of Christ that reminds us of this fact and we thank you that in your word you've always acted this way uh, to take the, the helpless and the hopeless and to make them part of your people uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus and we ask please that you might take us and use us in all of our weaknesses uh, so that we might be uh, the conduits of your power in this world so that lives might be changed in this room and in our community because of what you have done for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, please uh, continue to teach us this, uh, this fact as it is so uh, life-changing and life-shaping. Uh, we ask, please, that you would continue to work in us, uh, that we might see your strength at play. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.